I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. Momentarily, we'll be reading all 13 verses of Revelation, chapter 8. Good morning. Welcome to the worship of God. We're so glad that you're here. It's good to be together. For those that are joining online, we're glad that you're that you're here with us today. I know that some are unable to be with us. If you made it here this morning, it's Daylight Savings Time Sunday, so congratulations. You might want to reach back and pat yourself on the back. It's quite an accomplishment to make it here this morning. It's the little victories in life that ought to give us a small amount of joy. I mean, frankly, we're wounded, wounded believers, wounded saints. All saved people are called saints in the Bible, the set apart of God, the holy ones, the, the being made holy, the, the, holy, the being made holy ones of God. We come in here wounded, don't we, having done war with sin? We come in this place wounded. Uh, we need uh, not only each other, which is God's means too, but we, we need to hear from God by His Word, don't we? And we, need, we need fortified in this gathering of the saints that Jesus sought to purchase with His own shed blood. And we need fortification by this gathering. And we often only realize the profit that we have personally from this gathering downstream from having come, don't we? I mean, I know that when I've uh, kind of skipped out on going to church, uh, I'm, e I'm able to get by for a while. You know, it's kind of like not eating a meal. I'm, I'm able to get by for a while, but after a while, I start to, to uh, spiritually thin up. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing about that is, is that uh, we need nourished in the food of God. And uh, Jesus, of course, describes the food of God as the the word, the scriptures. Uh, he says, quoting Deuteronomy, he quotes in the New Covenant, uh, man shall not live on food or bread alone, but on every word that proceedeth from the mouth of the Father. Well, where do we find the words of life, right? Peter understood it. Uh, these, where else can we go, he said, in a moment of sanctified sobriety? You have the words of eternal life in the great winnowing of the followers of Christ during his ministry Peter had those sobering words that are recorded in John chapter 6 so we need to be uh, together and we need to sing together as spring's about to be sprung uh, we need to be energetic in our singing too don't we when we come together I love that last song we just sang is he worthy I mean it, we know the answer to such a rhetorical question but is he worthy? He is, right? And we need to be reminded of that. We, we need that. Uh, so this gathering is so important, and I'm so thankful uh, to be able to be here, and I, I would urge you not to take it for granted. You won't always be able to be together with God's people like this. I mean, we know one day we'll be together with God's people forever and ever, and that's, that's the punchline. But I'm talking about during this this 
this, this earthly life, as you're going about your business as a believer, and I am speaking mainly to believers, I have a few words today for, for those of you that are still considering the faith, but for this as a stated gathering of believers, planting our flag in faith as an outpost of the kingdom of heaven known as Mount Vernon Baptist Church, uh, we, we have our struggles, and we're coming together as a wounded people that need to be encouraged and re-energized to sing songs. Music moves me. Does it move you? I think of musical instruments, stringed instruments, such as we have here. I think of brass. You know, our service leader today, Brad, I've heard him here before play the trumpet. And today we're going to talk about trumpets. Trumpets move me. Uh, Brad, when you, I hope you'll play again sometime. I don't know if you're in here, if you're taking your kids or what, but I, I, I can't. There's so many of you here these days. I, I don't know where you are. If you are back there somewhere, hi. He's not waving at me, so he must have took his kid out. But he was reading scripture earlier, Brad was, and Jacob as well. So ably, so grateful for them taking time. You know, these, these guys, these men take time to prepare to do that. They don't just get up here sort of willy-nilly and just start riffing. I mean, they're preparing to do that, and so they're leading us in worship. And Brad plays that trumpet sometimes, too. Uh, I've, I've reminded of times I've officiated funerals for veterans, and, you know, they have a habit of playing taps. You familiar? on the trumpet, and it's, it's moving when it's played. It touches me every single time. There's something about that instrument. So today, when we hear God's Word read about the trumpet, let's consider how moving just being played by a man over a serious event or a woman playing a trumpet over a funeral, a serious event. Imagine how much more so that imagery is supposed to move us emotionally and point us intellectually toward something of importance. As much as taps reminds us of the brevity of life and of some sense of honor due to, a, to an earthly country, let's think of that instrument and how it's going to be divinely played and is being divinely played not by man but by angels and not from earth but from heaven and let's imagine heeding that sound let's be encouraged today to heed the sound of that trumpet as you hear God's plan for salvation through judgment and your opportunity in salvation to be received he's graciously provided for for you to be able to receive salvation if you have it and for all of us that have received salvation what a gracious gift it is, isn't it? A praiseworthy and celebratory time we have when we come together and say, wow, look what he's done for me. So the way I want to discuss this text, and I'll say it before I read the text, and then I'll say it again, is that I want to take it just on two simple parts today. I know you're thinking there has to be three points in a poem. I know it really messes with you when the expositor doesn't do three points in a poem, but I'm going to take two and elongate them as we look at verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 13. Here's how we'll take the two parts. First part would be how time is for the action of the saints and what kind of action we're involved in. And then secondly, in verses 6 through 13, we'll see how time also serves as an opportunity for the sinners and what that looks like as we look at the first four trumpets sounding. So let's, let's read God's word together here. I'll read it. Uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. I believe we'll be able to pull it up. And I'll tell you what, we don't always do this, but 
If you're able to, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Just as a reminder, not that we have to be standing to be reminded of it being food for us, but, but just as a reminder today, let's do that. Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now verse 6. Now these seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the, third, the, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Finally, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. I should have said that with more verb with that exclamation mark at the end. They're about to blow. It's what's coming next in this subset of Scripture, chapters 8 through 11, respectively. May God bless the reading of his word to minister grace into the hearers. You may be seated. Now let's consider this text together this morning. First of all, how our time in the here and now is for the action of the saints. Certain kinds of action of the saints. I'll get into them, but particularly prayer and proclamation sums it up. But... Before we get to the specifics of that, let's consider the the text in its context, shall we? Notice here that we are coming into chapter 8 after the first interlude in Revelation. We had an interlude in chapter 7. We'll pick one up in 10 and 11 and one up in 20. These interludes are dramatic pauses. And so it's fitting that we have a serious pause, as it is described, in heaven because of the serious nature of what's about to happen. You know, in half an hour is a short time when you're just going through your daily work, school, life. But when you're waiting for something, as one commentator says, it's a long time, isn't it? 
when you're, when you're having to wait for something, 30 minutes can, can feel very long, can't it? That's the way to think about verse 1. It says that when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, and re- remember, of course, we've been talking about seven seals after we talked about seven churches, and now we're going to talk about seven trumpets. So there's some imagery with the numbers. There's some things that should come to mind with the meaning of numbers. Seven is the number of days in creation. Remember, God rested on the seventh day. So seven is known as a number of completion in the Bible. So it's a complete section of time. And, and so I, I think it's reasonable to think that the description of the seals and now the description of the trumpets and even more emphatically and worse, the description of the bowls are talking about whole increments of time, whole increments of human history. And so when we read chapter 8, verse 1, we come to the end of the seal before the beginning of the trumpets, and many commentators will group chapter 8, verse 1 with its previous section instead of with the following section of 8, 2 and following. Nevertheless, just looking at chapter 8, verse 1, there's silence in heaven. So something serious is going on. I, I thought when I was sketching out my notes for this week, I thought, what would it be like if I read that verse and just set a clock and we were silent for 30 minutes? I really thought about it. You know, we have in, in our service, we'll have 30 seconds of silence at the beginning of the service and 30 seconds of silence to reflect at the end of service. And that can feel like a long time until we get used to silence, right? 30 minutes. Well, I finally decided against it, as you can see, because I'm preaching and you're listening and you're not just sitting. Uh, but it kind of is, it, it, it's worth thinking about. Silence before God. It's a spiritual discipline, by the way, silence is. Solitude. It's not just a town. Silence before God is important. And there are times that we need to be more quiet and listen and ponder. But there's also a time to speak, we're going to see, within the action of the saints. But I, I first just want to say to you that part of spirituality and leaning into prayer is the ability to, to not just only have background noise, but to be more quiet, to be still, as the Psalter says, and to know that He is God. So if something in your life is, is so out of kilter that silence is a bother to you, take it before the Lord today. Allow Jesus Christ to, to bring healing to your soul. Because there are times that we're not, we don't do well with silence. But I'll tell you, the healthier that we are, the more we appreciate being still and knowing, right? He's God. What's about to happen is really about the sobriety for the seriousness of what was to come, though, with regard to silence. The blowing of the seven trumpets. Surely it remembers Joshua chapter 6 and thinks and recalls of the fall of Jericho at the blast of seven trumpets. Remembering Jericho's fall was preceded by a period of silence as the Israelites encircled that city seven days without a sound. These seven trumpets then surely have Joshua in view. When we consider that marching around the city and what would happen, we might think of ourselves, in a sense, as God's army, fighting a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6 says, but a spiritual battle. The Lord has engaged us, and we therefore are engaged in the fight. Simply put, we are God's army. We're His people. Now, our weapon of warfare, 
weapon of warfare is the armor of God, which is described in Ephesians 6, particularly as prayer and proclamation of Scripture. We must not be shy about sharing the Word of God wherever we go. It's important. Look after the silence in heaven. Look at the, what John the Apostle saw as he wrote down the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. He saw seven angels standing before God, verse 2, and those angels were holding trumpets. And these trumpets signify judgment, as we will see. And it says in verse 3, Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. With a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with prayers, the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then all sorts of phenomena happens at that point. And so reflect upon verse 3. At the altar with a golden censer. What is with this golden censer? One pastor clarifies this refers to a golden pan suspended on a rope or chain, at least in terms of imagery, that was used to transport fiery coals from the brazen altar to the altar of incense in order to ignite the incense, symbolizing the prayers of God's people. This occurred twice daily at the time of the morning and the evening sacrifices in Old Covenant Temple. This censer, this concept of worship, of sacrifice by God's people. Now certainly in the New Covenant, we, being made the people of God, we do not offer animal sacrifices. We don't know much of burning incense, although there are some faith traditions that do that amongst Protestants, but we don't know much of burning incense and uh, we don't need a mediator going between us and God. Uh, that has been broken because Christ is our mediator, right? And so we, we pray, and God hears. The veil has been broken down. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about how now, because of Christ's finished work on the cross, we have access. So why go back and talk about the altar and the golden censer and incense. Well, it's because the entire Bible is for you. You need to understand the three pages for every one in the Bible that's called the Old Testament. You understand how it fits in context. You know, we've already seen uh, this morning that Joshua is important with this marching around and silence, right? We see here that Leviticus is important with regard to the way that Christ has fulfilled the entire law of Moses. So you ought to know what that law of Moses is and understand what it means to live in light of the new covenant in Christ and study out the law of Moses and what it is that we are to be about today according to God's law and to think through the aspects of the law of Moses and to think through in the New Testament what it is that Christ has commanded us to do and to live in light of starting really with one command and working out instead of starting with 613 and trying to find our way in. 
We also ought to think as we read this that this entire Bible is for you, particularly in your study, to accompany your prayers and your proclamation, because of the fact that the plagues in the Exodus are clearly in view with these judgments, judgments of hail. As you read in your book of the Bible of Exodus, you'll read about plagues brought on Egypt because of their legal representative, Pharaoh. In fact, our service leader read about those plagues earlier in the service. And Pharaoh would have a, a, a form of what looked like remorse, but he wasn't repentant, and he wouldn't let go of God's people. And so ultimately, Egypt, when a lot of time has gone by and a lot of sometimes impatience was voiced on the part of God's people, complaining because things didn't happen fast enough. At a certain point, after the plagues, especially the plague of the firstborn, the last plague, God's people are set free, and the Egyptian people are punished. Well, that all matters for us. It all matters, and it's in mind as we read Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 8, verse 3. As confusing as it can be for a new reader to the Old Testament, we must read it and seek to understand and not be dissuaded from it. And another angel, it says in verse 3, came and stood at the altar of the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints, not just some of them, but all the saints, on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Linsky, the commentator, says this about this verse. The incense represents the intercession of Christ for His church, which adds power and efficacy to the prayers of the church. The prayers of the church. These reach heaven's throne room. The family, they say, that prays together, stays together. You ever heard that one? Well, the church family that prays together, stays together. There'll be no harmony amongst the members of any town church USA unless that church eagerly, energetically, and enjoyably prays to their sovereign, who's become not only the Lord, but their Savior. And who, in unbelievable fashion, has decided to make a way for us to be friends. Steve Gregg says in his commentary about this verse, Since the fire from the altar is cast on the earth, the same censer that had offered up the prayers for the saints, then we are to understand that the retributive judgments of God come upon the earth in response to the prayers of the saints, of the church, of the saved, of the believers. Such prayers, it would appear from the result, are prayers for vindication. But they are not offensive in the sight of God, due to the incense joined to them. I can't say it better than Steve Gregg just did about this fire from the altar and the prayers of the saints. 
likely prayers for vindication. As we're considering this first point, and these first five voices, verses, let's remember that we're talking about how this time in which we live, how this time commands certain actions from the saints, from us, from the believers. And those actions include, as I've said, silence before God, heartfelt prayers individually as well as together that these prayers reach. They, they also, as we're going to see, require of us action of proclamation. We aren't supposed to keep this salvation to ourselves. We're supposed to spread it far and spread it wide. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not repent when Moses brought the word of the Lord to Pharaoh. But Moses still brought the word of the Lord to Pharaoh. You might be afraid, and even fortuitous, about the fact that the Pharaohs in your life will not repent. That is no matter for what you are called to do and how you are called to act in your Christian life today. You are to proclaim the life-giving message of salvation to people, and I'll make it singular, to a person that seems near as unlikely as Pharaoh's Egypt to repent because of the kingdom of God that is at hand. Yet we are called similarly to proclaim a message to a person and to a people. They're called earth dwellers in Revelation. They're descriptive of the people that will ultimately reject God's plan of salvation and spend eternity separated from the God that they wanted to be so far from. We are supposed to have an action of proclaiming the message to those that will not repent. A natural question for you to ask at this point in the sermon is, why? Why would God command action of His saints to proclaim a message like that to a people that will not listen. Or if they listen, at least they won't listen and turn that they might be saved. Why would you be called to do that? Why is that your job description as a saint living on earth now during your life? Why is that your opportunity the answer is that God intends to have them an opportunity that they, well, will reject. They will be without excuse when they face the judgment seat. You know why else you're supposed to tell them? Why your job description is to tell them? Your action is to tell them. 
It's because you don't know among all those who dwell on the earth which ones are going to be earth dwellers and which ones are going to heed your message. And they're going to become heavenly dwellers when kingdom come. You don't know. They don't even know. If they knew, they would repent now. I can think of two examples scripturally. Think of the hardness of the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. Do you remember? Acts chapter 9 records the message. He was, he was organizing the persecution of the saints in the early church. And remember, Jesus gets his man. He winds up getting him. And Ananias and early Christians had proclamation opportunities to aid and abet that indeed unusual conversion of Saul, but still there were people involved in proclaiming the word of truth to Paul and helping him understand how the Old Testament scriptures applied to this, this new covenant faith. So too is our job. We don't know. I think of another example a little bit more remotely in terms of chronology, but Jonah. You remember Jonah is so mad at the Ninevites because of what they've done to his people. And what do we get prophetically from that minor prophetic book of the Old Testament but a, a, a foreshadowing and understanding of how the gospel would go to all nations? Jonah was supposed to go to the people that he ought to hate and share the life-giving message of love. And he protested, and he said, they're not going to repent, I'm not going. He goes the other way, winds up in the other way. You know the whole story, right? But what happens when he goes? Well, he's mortified to find out what? They repent. Let's learn from Jonah. Let's not be mortified to find out they're going to repent. Now, some of them will not. But some of them will. And you and I, no more than we know the hour of the return of Christ, know which of them will repent. Moses' message to Pharaoh was not superfluous. And your message to those that will not repent isn't either. You must proclaim. The actions of the saints described in this time of us, of what we're to be about, in Revelation 8, 1 to 5, and other places in the cyclical nature of Revelation, as we've seen and we'll see again. The actions here, however straightforward they may seem upon reflection, however simple-minded you may find them, are nonetheless the concise, conciliatory, Christian job description that the Lord has laid out for us. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to take away from it. What he has said for us to do primarily should drive all the other jobs and actions that we do. We are praying, proclaiming people. And we need to be reminded of it over and over again. Prayer is our opportunity. I'm reminded of the Reverend Barry Black at the 65th Annual National Prayer Breakfast a few years back. Those breakfasts can be vanilla and sometimes unhelpful, but his words were powerful when he preached, let your voice be heard in heaven. He reminded the Senate that when we pray prayers of faith, that God hears us. 
Why wouldn't you want your voice to be heard in heaven? Don't you want your voice to be heard in heaven? Then pray, pray, pray. My goodness, what a humbling and glorious thing to pray. You have to stop. Some might protest, well, I pray without ceasing. Well, I think an attitude of prayer without ceasing, like 1 Thessalonians says, is good. But Jesus also modeled for us, and we've been commanded to cease our activity to pray. Let's have a textured understanding of prayer and let our voices be heard in heaven for joy's sake. I'm reminded of the late Peter Marshall. His wife, Catherine, chronicled his, his guide, his prayers, and she wrote that he said this, Father, I am beginning to know how much I miss when I fail to talk to you in prayer and through prayer to receive into my life the strength and guidance which only you can give. Forgive me for the pride and the presumption that make me continue to struggle to manage my own affairs, to the exhaustion of my body, the weariness of my mind, and the trial of my faith. In a moment like this, I know that you could have worked your good in me with so little strain, with so little effort, and then to you would have been given the praise and the glory. And he finally says this, When I neglect to pray, mine is the loss. Can you say that with the late Peter Marshall? Can we say, mine is the loss when I neglect to pray? And he made it a prayer of forgiveness. He said, forgive me, Lord. Amen. See, friends, it's, this is where it gets a little bit rough because... Yours truly sometimes doesn't give, oftentimes doesn't give the time to prayer that he ought to. But I can tell you without reservation that when my day starts on my knees, mm, it, it's, wow. It's just, there's a sense of purpose to my steps. Not like God's a cosmic slot machine and I won't scrape my knee or have a bad day. It's just there's a certain kind of peace that only comes from on high. And we must talk to Him and hear from Him by His Word. When your day starts with talking and hearing and talking and hearing, when your day starts vertical, just like your week is supposed to start vertical, on this the Lord's Day, with talking and hearing and talking and hearing, when your day starts and your week starts vertical, guess what? It affects it represents and affects the whole thing. It affects and it represents the whole span of time for you. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that Christ is interceding for us. We have the Spirit interceding for us in prayer. 2 Corinthians 13, we're reminded by the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ is in you. That's the language the Apostle Paul uses. Jesus Christ is in you. Friend, let us never forget that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he who is in you is interceding for you and his grace is enough for you. His word is sufficient. Pray it and tell it. And don't wait for perfect circumstances to tell it. That's the trick of the enemy. Described no less in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, where 
we have a character, Wormwood, whose name is inspired by a verse in this section we're reading today, whose job is to keep one that has professed to be a Christian too busy to proclaim, too busy to pray, too busy for be still and know that he's God. You don't want to be too busy, do you? Let's let the Lord minister to us today. Let's slow down. Let's hear the words of life. Let's be willing, if need be, to delay a meal for it. I have no intention of droning on into the afternoon. But let's give time to understand the word before we say amen. Amen? Let's not rush through the exposition as if it's some sort of a candy bar to be scarfed because we can't get to a good meal. No, 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 no. He's called us today to sit at a table and to have a full meal from his word. Let's take it in. Let's be nourished by it. Some of you will protest today that you're not ready to tell the gospel to other people. That this action that's in your job description as a Christian, you're too young of a Christian. The late Charles Spurgeon foresaw such a protest, and here's what he wrote in his devotional book on this score. He said, You have not to think out and invent a message, nor to choose an audience. You are to speak what God commanded and speak where God sends you. And this would be enabled to do in strength not your own, just like God told the prophet Jeremiah. Is it not so with some young of you who may hear these lines now? God knows how young you are in the faith, Spurgeon is intimating. God knows how young you are in the faith and how slender are your knowledge and experience. But if he chooses to send you, it is not for you to shrink from the heavenly call. God will magnify himself in your feebleness. And as only Spurgeon could, he teaches the span of the Bible to make a point. He then says, if you were as old as Methuselah, how much would your years help you? If you were as wise as Solomon, you might be equally as willful as he. Keep you to your message, and it will be your wisdom. Follow your marching orders, and they will be your discretion. Ours is not to decide when the time is right. Ours is not to decide when the time is ideal. Ours is not to decide when the time is perfect. There will not be a perfect time to declare the perfect message from on high. Tell them, and tell them again, and tell them what you told them. For this time is your opportunity to act in faith. Time is not just an opportunity for saints in the here and now, but time is also an opportunity for sinners and by that, I don't mean sinners as if we're not sinners. The litmus test between saints and sinners on earth is not whether or not we sin. We all do, right? And that sin separates us from a holy and righteous God. 
The litmus test is not between saints and sinners in this context. It's not whether or not we are prone to sin. Of course, saints still sin. But we've joined God's army. We've staked our flag. We've circled our Jericho. And we are in a spiritual war against that sin. We don't love our sin anymore. It bothers us. Why? Because we've moved from the whoa, whoa, whoa of Revelation 8, 13 back to reflect upon the holy, holy, holy of Isaiah 6. And we're reminded of what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, reflecting upon the law, that we are to be holy as He is holy. Perfectly? Not yet. Aspirationally? To be sure. We're to pursue holiness, aren't we? The late R.C. Sproul, God rest his soul, what a powerful preacher he was in the 20th century. Passed away within the last few years. He wrote a book that really, really put him on the map, and the book was about the holiness of God. It was a reflection on how we should not think of God as some kind of a cosmic grandpa, but we should reflect on, with seriousness, his holiness and how his Holiness, His light hath no fellowship with the darkness in our hearts. And the only way that He would ever be able to keep His character, which He will not violate, and be in a relationship with us, is He would have to fix the unholiness inside of us. R.C. Sproul understood something that we must understand as well. And we understand it by reading the whole Bible. It's that we are separated from God by sin. And our unholiness has to be rectified in the economy of God or we won't spend eternity with Him. He understood it by reading the prophetic literature and listening to the warnings pelted at us. As if to say, you're not holy, you're not holy, you're not holy. It's as if in the pyramid of the storyline of the Bible, it's as if God is shouting three pages to one, you people can't get it right, you're not like me. You people can't get it right, you're not like me. And there's these little droplets throughout the Bible that point toward the narrative arc and the climax of the Bible that is Jesus Christ. And the point that you're to take and that you can miss if you start worrying about shellfish and shrimp is that in the Bible, our inability to do what he has said, to be holy, it has to be rectified in order for us to spend eternity with him. And so this life, this short span of time relative to all of eternity, whether in the past or the future, this short period of time has a primary point to it. And that primary point to it is that you come to terms with the fact that unless He changes you from unholy to holy, you will have no part in Him. And to make it very simple for the youngest ears, even the children in my hearing, and those of you that are childlike with your understanding of this big book that I'm summarizing, to make it very clear you will not spend eternity with God unless God makes you like Him with regard to holiness. 
That is terrifying. And that's the precursor to salvation. It is terrifying to imagine that as true. And most will not. The earth dwellers, most of them will not. Some of them will. That's why we have to tell them, as I said before, we must tell them this message because some of them will. Some Ninevites will repent, to use the metaphor of Jonah. Some Pauls, Sauls, will repent, to use the metaphor of the apostle. Some will turn, and it may be you today. I told you I get to talk to you in this sermon too. It may be that you are here at the behest of a friend or a family member. It may be that you are coming to terms that, that you, this, this weight of separation from a holy God, you're coming to terms with it. And, and it's, 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 you're at that point where you could say, yeah, I believe that, so what? I mean, tell me what's next. Or, I'm not buying that, I'm going to go back to doing what I want to do, I don't want any of that. You may be as close to the message as you're ever going to get. The Bible says in Corinthians that this day, today is the day of salvation. You must repent of your sin and your unholiness and receive the free gift of God that is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of all the bad news in Scripture is that in the narrative arc of the Bible that a Messiah would come and in fact He has come and in fact He will come again, that's Revelation, and He will finally separate the saints from the sinners. And in this time right now, you have this opportunity to stare down your unholiness and to say, I can't find a fix in me, and I can't find a fix here, but I believe in the fix from there. Won't you save me and make me new? And what the Bible says is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord like that will be saved. You'll be from a sinner to a saint. Every one of you. It is that simple. And because it's an act of the will, it requires the help of God or you'll never do it. Is He calling you today? Is He calling on you to call on Him? Have you realized your unholiness compared to Him? Do you realize that you can't fix it? The Bible says the wages of what you've earned for the way you lived your life and been employed is death. It's eternal separation from God. And the prophets shout it and Revelation underscores it. And yet, the free gift... Hear me, young person. Hear me, young person. Young people pass away every week. Hear me. This is your opportunity. The free gift of eternal life comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the point of the time you have right now. It is to receive and then to propagate that message. It's for you. And I'm telling you, there's no more important message. The powers of hell do not want this feeding trough at the beginning of the week for your soul. The powers of hell do not want you talking to and hearing from God in prayer and word every morning of the week before you go throughout your day. The powers of evil do not want you to take the time to be silent before God, to hear from this word and to respond to it. But God is greater than he who is in the world. And we know as believers, he who is in us now is greater than he who is in the world. Christ wants to come into your heart and life and change you from the inside out. He wants to give you a righteousness alien to you. He wants to make you like Him. That's why we cry about this thing. Because we can't do it. We know the earth dwellers are destined for doom and they'll reject it. But you don't have to be an earth dweller. You can be a heavenly dweller. 
You can love Christ. That's the gospel. Isn't it glorious? Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. We're not like the other religions of the world trying to climb a mountain and get on top to God. He came down from the mountain. And He sent us this message that we might be saved. Look at Revelation chapter 8, verse 6. These trumpets are the judgments of God meted out on the world. And they are felt by us. These types of judgments are felt. They're all moving toward a great crescendo of the final judgment when God will separate the earth dwellers from those in salvation, saints from sinners. But hear me, sinners, the restraint of God in these first four judgments with the sounding of the trumpets is designed to give you the necessary time to repent. Today is the day of salvation for you. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. One commentator, Bacham, notes the trumpets, the judgments, up to and including that of the sixth trumpet, are strictly limited. Strictly limited. One-third of the earth, it says. It's not like the bold judgments coming and the great final judgment. The judgments, the trumpets, up to and including that of the sixth trumpet, are strictly limited. These are warning judgments I'm about to read to you. They're warning shots designed to bring humanity to repentance. It is clear, they're like shots across the bow. It is clearly stated that they do not, in fact, bring humanity, not all of it, to repentance. Those who survive the judgments and do not repent will face the final judgment. Judgment in and of itself does not automatically lead to your repentance and faith. But it, it, this judgment, the judgment of God, the bad things in this life now, can lead you there. And if it is, what a glorious salvation you're receiving today through faith in Christ. No, it's not some sinner's prayer. I'm not going to write down a sheet and you repeat after me and all of a sudden you're saved. I'm saying if the Lord's working on you, just call out to Him in prayer. Tell Him how sorry you are for your sin and love Him. And trust His gospel and figure it out as we go. This is not, not, this is not some kind of a, of a catechism or something. This is an act of the will. Christ changes you, you express it to Him. You start coming every Sunday and expressing it to Him. You, we teach you Bible study time, you express it to Him, you hear from Him. You start to be, you're engaging in spiritual things, and before you know it, you're starting to get some weight to you with spiritual things. That's what it's about. It's not about some, ka-ching, I did it. No, it's, not, it's much more full and thoroughbred than that. It's much more whole life than that. Yeah, there's an alpha point when you're saved, absolutely. But salvation is all through the Christian life. And your sanctification and your salvation is only complete upon your death when you meet Christ. So we're warring against sin. Listen, I'm going to try to to summarize these quickly, these first four of seven trumpets. Verse 6, Now the seven angels who had had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth, remember limited, a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. This first trumpet describes problems on the land, probably resulting in a famine, world hunger, now the second angel blew his trumpet. It's as if to say to mankind, do you want to try to do this without me? This is what it looks like in all your rebellion. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this is a, a commerce issue. 
connected to the first, but not, not the same exactly as the first trumpet. It's, if you imagine the way that we get food coming in and out of ports and goods, that being disrupted, that is quite indeed sin in its full expression. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This is contaminated water. You can turn your tap on today and let water run into your cup and drink it. It's, it's not probably contaminated. It can be. There's times where we are not supposed to wear under a boil, boil water alert from time to time. Most of the time in this particular country in which we live, we, we don't know about this. But there are many countries of the world, many countries of the world, many countries in which missionary work is done by faithful missionaries where the water is not fit to drink. It is the restraining grace of God on humanity that it's not as bad as it could be. And conditions are likely to worsen before his return. And dirty water is one example of mankind in utter rebellion against God. One commentator said that God offers us to drink his living water and in a Romans 1 sense, as we rebel against him, he leaves us to our own figuring things out. And we wind up not with living water, but with water that produces this death. These angels blowing these trumpets are indicative of, of judgment. The commentator Greg Beale says, in apocalyptic literature such as this, stars represent angels corporately representing peoples on earth. So he explains it. He says, thus the star equals an angel, which equals a legal-like representative of some sinful people. Think like Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. It, fall, it, it's fall in, it falls in flames, therefore, represents the fall of a people under the judgment of God. Beale notes that the Hebrew Midrash on Exodus chapter 7, talking about the plague of the waters of Egypt, sees the Moses, Mosaic, the law of Moses, Moses' plague as a judgment on heavenly beings, namely the God of the Nile, the Nile God. These deities are seen as the legal agents, the legal-like agents of the sinful people who are affected by the plague. And the star in the context of Revelation 8.10 thus represents Babylon's representative angel, which is if you study throughout Revelation, you'll find Babylon is a metaphor for global powers gone wayward. Rome is thought of as a type of Babylon. Global power has gone wayward. So if you consider this great star in this fall in that way, then consider the bitter waters, the, the poisonous waters of verse 11. As we're considering this third judgment of four today, third of seven actually, but four that we talk about today. Bitter waters that cannot be ingested without sickness. Poison water, contaminated. The turning of pure waters bitter might reflect the fact that God in the Old Testament, as I said, refers to himself as the fountains of living water and complains that his people have forsaken him for idols which pollutes their worship. 
When men preferred bitter water, one says, waters of idolatry to the fountain of living water, they will receive these bitter consequences which follow in a Romans 1 sense. And so we today are reminded of what an opportunity we have to drink living water, to war against sin, and to love the salvation he's given us, even as he necessarily, as a condition of his own righteous character, must mete out judgment on the earth dwellers that will not follow him. Within this second point, there are four judgments. Time is the opportunity for the sinner to come to faith. And this fourth judgment accelerates the urgency of that opportunity. Look at verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. It should be obvious, one commentator writes, that John is painting a picture and not writing a treatise on astronomy. The darkness prefigures the doom of the ungodly, like the prophet Isaiah says. And it's also the, the prelude to the new exodus of God's people from under the hands of their oppressors, like Luke 21 discusses. In an age which looks to the stars for guidance, this verse reminds us that God exercises complete control over the entire solar system. Be reminded that this damage that we're reading about is partial. It's not complete. It's one-third. So there's time for you, sinner, to repent of your sin and trust the gospel. But the time is not forever. Second, Peter speaks of God as patient. And he gets made fun of for his patience with the earth dwellers. But he's patient, not willing that any of us would perish, but that every one of you would come to repentance. These final three trumpets, they're just going to increase in the terrifying nature of the judgment. These first four are bad enough, right? Think of them as a shot across the bow, as your opportunity. Don't tarry in coming to the Lord. The great Puritan pastor, John Owen, said it better than I can, so let me summarize it today like this. He said, the, the pastor has two problems. He says, first is to convince sinners that sin does have control over them. So it's like the second part of the sermon. The pastor has the problem of, I need to convince the sinner. Obviously, God needs to. I'm trying to speak on his behalf and, and give you the words of life today. So the first problem is to convince sinners that sin does actually have control over you. The second problem that a pastor has is to convince committed Christians that sin does not have control over them. I couldn't have said it better than John Owen. So I'll say it one more time because it summarizes the points of the sermon today so well. The first problem a pastor has is to convince sinners that sin does have control over them. That it's got a grip on your life. I've explained to you the way out of that, but the first is to realize you're in that. And the second pastoral problem is for those that have come out of it, is, is to help you again and again understand and be convinced that sin doesn't have control over you. That you're winning a war. That you're being made holy. God's giving the world a warning. But that warning, it, it's not for you. Because the warnings are only to make you more like Him. To call you back again and again from your sin into His glorious presence. It's not that as saints that we're not sinners. It's that we realize our sin and that we 
are deeply grieved by it. Won't you join us in our grievedness for our sins and in our war for growth in the gospel? Won't you join us by being enjoined with Christ by receiving his gospel? In conclusion, trumpets, biblically, they look forward. They're warnings for the enemies of God, but for the friends of God, for the believers, for the saints, we can imagine the sounding of the trumpet as an encouraging sound in its finality. In recent past, our forefathers in rural America have sang a hymn with lyrics like this, When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound. Do you know the hymn? When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the church at Thessalonica needed encouragement through bereavement, the Apostle Paul offered these words of instruction for their encouragement. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Don't be uninformed about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Not a sound for us to fear at that point, right, friends? But a sound for us to enjoy. Beautiful, beautiful sound. The sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Isn't that going to be good? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. They're for you, saints. The trumpet sound of taps is moving at a funeral indeed, but nothing compares to the trumpet sound of angels. So beware. Be ready and be blessed, beloved. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, how glorious is your name. Your kingdom come, we pray, and your will be done. We pray here as it is there. We pray for our daily needs to be met and for us to be content for just what we need today. We pray for mercy daily and for us to share that mercy daily. Help us to find our voice of proclamation of your gospel. Help us to maintain our voice in prayer. Make us comfortable before you in silence and uncomfortable before you with sin. Spare us temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and might be to you, our God, forever and ever and ever. Before I say amen, let's have 30 seconds of silent prayer reflection.
In Jesus' name, amen. Please remain seated. Our ushers will dismiss you row by row.